Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Gary Small. I'm a professor of psychiatry and aging at UCLA, and I'm delighted to be presenting this podcast entitled Assessment and Treatment of Age-Related Cognitive Decline. Now, the objectives for this podcast will include learning about the evaluation and diagnosis of age-related cognitive decline, developing awareness of the non-pharmacologic interventions for these conditions, and finally, to become more aware of the available pharmacologic treatments for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And we'll be learning about these issues through a presentation of a case. So let's begin with the case. I'm going to describe a 62-year-old high school principal who I'll call Robert. He consulted with me a few years ago because of concerns about his memory. He was having trouble recalling the names of some of his students, and he even misfiled several documents. And, of course, this made him anxious and concerned about what all this means. When he came to see me, he told me that he, these symptoms had been going on for a few months. Actually, it was about six months. And, and began around the time when he and his wife were in the middle of a move from their house of 30 years to a condo. Their kids had gotten out of the house, they were uh, adult children starting their own lives, and Robert and his wife were interested in downsizing. When I talked to him in more detail, I learned that he was quite anxious about this move, that uh, 30 years in the same house, it was pretty daunting, and he was concerned about a lot of things, about whether it would go well, whether they get enough money from the sale, whether they'd be too cramped in their condo, and so forth. Robert had a history in his family of Alzheimer's disease. He had a paternal uncle uh, who had developed symptoms in his mid-80s. Uh, now, let me just pause for a moment and, and make a point. Here, Robert was 62 and beginning to have symptoms. And it's typical, uh, when I see patients with uh, memory complaints, that they're worried about their family history. But at age 82, in his early uh, 80s, it's unlikely that the kind of dementia symptoms that his uncle developed are the same as the kind of symptoms that Robert is experiencing in his early 60s. If there's a genetic risk for Alzheimer's in a family, the age at onset 
when that risk begins tends to be consistent among relatives. So uh, when Robert told me that, I reassured him that it's possible he has a genetic risk, but it's unlikely uh, given that family history from his uncle. Robert also had no prior history of cognitive issues, except he experienced a mild concussion during college. He was playing football during his freshman year. He lost consciousness for just a few minutes and experienced some challenges with his memory for about a week after the incident. Now, head trauma does increase risk for dementia, and we're all hearing about these mild traumatic brain injuries from sports-related uh, injuries. But a very mild concussion, like the one Robert experienced, is not too much cause for concern. Uh, the data show that people who have a history of head trauma with unconsciousness lasting an hour or more, those are the ones who have an increased risk for dementia. And I also reassured Robert about that other potential risk factor. The patient was in, uh, in good physical health, uh, but did take medication for high cholesterol and hypertension. And this, of course, is typical of people as they reach their 60s and beyond. When I performed a cognitive assessment, he did have some mild memory issues, but it was only short-term recall. He didn't see any problem with reasoning, uh, with language, and so forth. So I ran some blood tests, didn't find anything unusual, no high thyroid uh, levels, uh, no anemia, other kinds of medical conditions that can contribute to cognitive loss. And I went through the differential diagnosis. And of course, the first thing that came to mind that this was age-related memory loss that was typical of someone at Robert's age. Generally, these kinds of memory issues are stable, but they can worsen from stress. So it was clear that stress was contributing to some of uh, Robert's concerns. Uh, you know, another concern when people come in with these kinds of symptoms is that they're experiencing something called mild cognitive impairment. And that's a memory issue that is more difficult for people than normal aging, or what I assumed Robert's problem was. With mild cognitive impairment, people are having more frequent cognitive issues, uh, but they're able to compensate for them, and uh, it doesn't interfere with their daily functioning. However, if people have memory issues and mild cognitive impairment, their risk for developing dementia each year is 10%. And dementia is defined as a memory or other cognitive loss that interferes with the person's ability to take care of themselves, to remain independent. And we'll talk about dementia a bit more in a moment. So I reassured Robert, and I recommended some stress reduction interventions. Uh, there are apps you can download 
on your smartphone that provide guided meditation. Uh, I recommended perhaps a yoga class, uh, perhaps some more physical exercise. And uh, we have some memory training programs at uh, UCLA, and he enrolled in one of those programs. So things went pretty well with Robert. In fact, uh, when he came back a year later, Robert was doing quite well. He was uh, enjoying his meditation every day. He started doing it uh, with his wife, and they both enjoyed it. They started taking walks together around the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, when I checked his memory, he actually improved a bit. His short-term memory was much better. So it's pretty typical that stress can affect memory. We know from animal studies Chronic stress can actually shrink the hippocampal memory centers of the brain. People who are prone to stress actually have an increased risk for developing dementia. It's twofold in one study. And if one injects a healthy volunteer with cortisol, a stress hormone, uh, you see worsening of memory. Now, fortunately, it's temporary. It goes away. So... The studies show that we can intervene and make a difference with stress. Now, a year after this one-year follow-up visit, Robert returned. And what was different this time was that he brought his wife with him. And many times when I see family members come in with the patient, it raises my suspicion that issues are progressing. This time when I uh, went over his history, it seemed that his memory issues were more severe. Uh, he was uh, really having a problem at work. He, was, he and his wife were concerned that he wouldn't be able to continue because of uh, many of the short-term memory issues. There was an incident where he uh, got lost around the neighborhood when he was driving. And uh, I performed a brief mental status exam, and it was clear that his memory issues were much worse. I actually referred him for neuropsychological testing, and it confirmed uh, that at this point, Robert had progressed, and uh, I was concerned that his diagnosis now was dementia, that he needed help from his wife to get things done. Uh, he couldn't function independently. As recommended by the American Academy of Neurology, I performed an MRI scan to make sure that he didn't have any space-occupying lesions. I didn't think a PET scan was necessary because this presentation seemed pretty typical of an Alzheimer-type dementia. It didn't really seem to be changing his personality much, which is what you might see in frontal temporal dementia or a, a severe language problem. And a PET scan where you look at glucose metabolism uh, can help one differentiate between Alzheimer-type uh, dementia and frontal temporal dementia. Now, that's important because uh, the medications used to help with the symptoms of Alzheimer-type dementia don't always help patients with frontal temporal dementia. In fact, for some patients, it can cause side effects. I spoke with uh, 
Robert and his fa and his wife and uh, described what I thought was the problem and some of my concerns. They were not shocked. Uh, they were pretty smart people. They pretty much knew what was going on. Uh, I spoke about the driving, that that was a big concern. In California, doctors are required to report people who have cognitive issues like this. They need to report them to the health department, which in turn notifies uh, the the patient and family about uh, requiring a driving test to continue. And then we talked about what they could do at this point. I started with uh, telling them that I, I want them to continue with this healthy lifestyle program where they would take walks together, continue the meditation to reduce stress. I recommended that uh, Robert try to cut back on what he's doing and maybe it's a, a time uh, to take a leave of absence from work and scale things down and see if that's uh, better for them. And then I also discussed uh, the medications that are available that might be able to help him. Now for people with uh, mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia, uh, cholinesterase inhibitors uh, have been approved by the FDA for treatment. Now these medicines do not cure the problem. They provide uh, temporary uh, benefits. They uh, generally will help people stay at the same level of functioning uh, about a year later. And it's very important when I prescribe these medicines that I don't provide unrealistic expectations about what they can do. Now, if you don't do that, uh, people will try the medicines and they find, well, it's not a huge benefit. And in fact, with a lot of people, they don't even notice a cognitive benefit, but it does, for the average person, stabilize them, and maybe they'll see some mild improvement. And, and again, that's important because if you don't explain that, they're likely to stop the medicine after a few months or even a month if they don't see that improvement. I started him on a drug called Dinepazil, and uh, it's a a pill that the patient can take. And I started them on five milligrams. Uh, after a month, I increased to 10 milligrams. But the patient developed side effects. He got uh, a lot of nausea. It was hard for him to tolerate it. And he was having vivid dreams. Uh, and as a result, I decided to switch him to another medication. That's a cholinesterase inhibitor. And uh, that's called rivastigmine. And the reason I switched to rivastigmine, it comes in a transdermal patch form, and that form of delivery tends to have fewer gastrointestinal side effects. So I switched him uh, after a few months to rivastigmine patch, and he tolerated it quite well. Uh, the family didn't really see much improvement, uh, but he uh, didn't really have much progression over the year. About a, two years later, uh, the family came back in, and, and he was getting a bit worse. And at that point, he had moderately severe Alzheimer's dementia. And uh, another medication called memantine, which affects another neurotransmitter system, uh, is indicated for patients with uh, moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. 
So at that point, I added memantine uh, to the cholinesterase inhibitor, rivastigmine, and uh, the studies show that you can get additional benefits from that medication, and it has relatively few side effects. So, you know, a couple of things I just want to summarize about this case. Uh, first, that uh, Robert uh, did engage in the lifestyle strategies that was helpful to him. Uh, he and his wife continued with them, uh, even after the diagnosis of dementia. And I find that my patients do better if I combine these lifestyle tr uh, strategies along with the, the uh, medical approach and uh, use of medications. Uh, and it's also, you know, I just want to reiterate how important it is uh, to not oversell medications because people will stop the medications. It's important for people to have realistic expectations about what they can expect uh, from the currently available treatments for Alzheimer's dementia. Another thing I just want to point out is that in terms of my assessment, um, I didn't get a lot of fancy scans. And now, I, you know, I'm somebody who's uh, spent decades of my career doing research on new technologies, PET scans, the uh, track amyloid and tau in the brain, uh, functional MRI scanning. Uh, and I think these are very important tools. But, you know, when I see a patient, I'm always asking myself, what is practical? What's going to help this patient? Uh, sometimes families are interested in getting involved in clinical trials, and if they are, I encourage them to do that. Uh, there are no disease-modifying treatments that are yet available, but uh, most of the clinical trials allow patients to continue on these symptomatic treatments uh, while they're uh, getting tested and receiving either a placebo or a new medication or infusion or another strategy to try to help more than we can in terms of uh, the treatment of dementia. So, you know, I hope that uh, you got something out of this web, uh, this podcast. You know, I think uh, we all see a lot of dementia in our practices. And if you're a primary care physician, it's quite important what you do because there really are not enough geriatric psychiatrists like myself or neurologists to be able to take care of the millions of people who are suffering from dementia. And uh, we're only seeing a rise in the numbers because our society is aging and age is the greatest single risk factor for developing dementia. But there is good news. You know, I've been talking about these lifestyle strategies and prevention strategies for many years. And there's been much more research on it showing it can, can have a, a significant impact. Uh, and in fact, we're seeing that the rates of dementia that were predicted 10 years ago are actually lower in many uh, developed countries. And we suspect uh, that it may be because people are living healthier lifestyles. They're eating healthy diets. They're engaging in more physical exercise. Uh, they're stimulating their minds. Uh, and you know, I think this is critically important uh, for our society. I mean, some estimates are 
that uh, these modifiable risk factors for dementia, in addition to the ones I mentioned, uh, treating depression if it's present, uh, not smoking, uh, and, and many others, just taking your cholesterol medicine, your medicine for hypertension. And if people did this, the, the cases of dementia worldwide would be reduced uh, dramatically. And I think as we wait for science to catch up and, and find us some of these disease-modifying treatments that could uh, truly prevent the disease or even cure it, uh, we should all be living a healthy lifestyle so that we can stave off symptoms and enjoy our lives for as long as possible. Thank you again for joining me on this podcast. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.